0: Open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Please stand as we read verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice... Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, as stated last week, what we have here in Mark 1 is not the start of the gospel. The start of the gospel begins in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15. God begins to unfold his plan of redemption. That's grace, that's gospel, good news, truth. But here we have the beginning of the gospel appearing in person. The beginning of the gospel appearing in person, that is the earthly ministry of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Bible, by way of reminder, is essentially a book about Jesus. The hermeneutical key of understanding all of Scripture is Jesus the Christ. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. The hermeneutical key of understanding the Bible is not national Israel. It's not Hebrew people. It's not physical temple construction under the Old Covenant uh, preceding some future millennial eschatological, that is, end times temple. That is not the hermeneutical key of understanding Scripture. Jesus Christ is. He is the key that unlocks understanding of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Old Testament, he's prophesied. Here now in Mark, he reveals him. Notice there's three different designations that define him. His name, his title in his nature or identity. Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Also, as stated last week, Jesus, the name Jesus was a very, very, very common first century Israel Israel name or name in Israel. It's a very common name. Um, he would have been known as Jesus Bar Joseph meaning Jesus, son of Joseph, the carpenter, is a local boy growing up in in Nazareth. Very common name. That's why we read Jesus of Nazareth, to identify him and the work that he did. So his human name is Jesus. His royal title is Christ. Christ is not his last name. That's his royal title. He is the anointed one. He is the promised Messiah. He, in short, is king. Jesus, the King. Jesus, the Anointed One. Jesus, the Christ. The description of his his identity? Son of God. And that is a claim of absolute deity. He is one in nature with God. Co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus is God. Come in the flesh. In God is eager for us to experience the fullness of life that he has for us in Christ Jesus. And he's just as eager this morning for you to experience the fullness that there is in Christ. Jesus has come, he said, that we may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life in Christ Jesus. So his desire for us is to experience A renewed, for the believer, a renewed, refreshed, real and vibrant life in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for you, beloved. Every day. That's what Mark's gospel is all about. Because he's going to go on to emphasize following Christ. Disciples of Christ. We're disciples, we're followers of the one who's redeemed us. This is is what everyone wants deep down within. Everybody who's seeking joy, everyone who's seeking fulfillment in this life, this is what they want. They just don't know it. So they try to fill it with everything else because this is what we need. What we need is our creator who's redeemer to grant us these things by his grace. Fullness of life. And fullness of life is only found in having what? Eternal life. It's in Christ alone. So the king has come, and any time a king would arrive on scene, he's usually preceded by a herald. And the purpose of a herald is to prepare the way for the king. It's to announce his coming arrival. Even our own president, when, when he walks into a room or into a situation as the head of state, he's announced not only verbally, but sometimes Musically, as they play what? Hail to the chief. Herald. So here, Mark, the writer of this gospel, introduces to us the herald who was sent to announce the arrival of this king, who is the king of kings. Now, when you look at all the gospel accounts, they they open the gospels, in a different manner, Matthew, for instance, begins his gospel account with the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. Luke, he begins by the foretelling or the foretelling of John's birth, John the Baptist. John, he begins in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Everything that was made was made through him. Nothing was made, that was made without him, speaking of Jesus, Luke, he also provides an angelic announcement. The night Christ was born, scared these little shepherd fellas half to death when he announces, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Mark doesn't begin at the birth of Jesus. He doesn't begin at the birth of John. He begins his gospel with the commencement of our Lord's public ministry. God incarnate, stepping onto the stage of history, it would be inconceivable for him to arrive unannounced. And this morning, we're introduced to that herald. John, the Baptist. There's three factors for us to consider this morning. Number one is the anticipation... Of a messenger, that's point one, anticipation of a messenger. Number two is the appearance of the messenger. And number three, we'll look at at the announcement of that messenger. So the anticipation for a messenger, appearance of the messenger, and then the announcement of that messenger. Notice first, verses 2 and 3, anticipation. Anticipation. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight That was said in Isaiah 700 years before Mark wrote this Now if you notice if you if you go back two books go back to Matthew go back to Malachi if you go to Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 uh, we read that, that very phrase, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Notice Mark says it's written by Isaiah. What is this some kind of faux pas? Or what, what is this? No. If you notice first, Malachi is quoted. Isaiah's prophecy word comes in verse 3. So, why didn't you mention Malachi's name? And the reason is this. There's, there's an old rabbinic rule. When you cite two prophets, you give the citation to the greater prophet. Okay, so Isaiah is the greater prophet. First, he cites Malachi, and then he cites Isaiah. So Mark knew exactly what he was doing. All right? There's no mistake here. For any of your friends who want to argue that, who don't believe, just tell them that. Amen? So, he he cites the Old Testament, not to to quote a direct prophecy as regards Jesus, but to, to echo a prophecy about his herald, about the Christ's forerunner, who will proclaim his arrival. That's who he's talking about. And notice he writes, as it is written. As it is written. In other words, the king being heralded is not some afterthought of God. As it was written. This is the unfolding plan of God since ancient days. Prophesied 700 years before Mark writes this. So Mark's Gentile readers, and that was his main audience for his gospel, were Gentiles. And they would need to know that the one who announced his arrival is the one who was prophesied in the ancient texts. So he says, as it is written. So Isaiah having declared the one who's being spoken about, he is God. He is God. This is is Yahweh. Notice, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For those of you who have friends who say, Jesus isn't God, there's another text for you. So that's precisely what Mark wants to emphasize here, he quotes from Isaiah, saying the prophets... They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God. The one coming to save sinners was very God, a very God. For only God can save sinners. So Mark here immediately taps into the prophetic anticipation this is something special he says this is something significant something very very special is about to happen something very someone very special spe- very 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 special is about to come on the scene. And he writes years later as he gathers not only his own memories but many records of Peter. It's believed he gained a lot of his detailed information from Peter who walked with the Lord for those 3 plus years. So there is a messenger He's going to prepare the way for God himself who will arrive in a human body. Okay, So there's the anticipation, point one, of a messenger. Number two, second factor for our consideration, is the appearance of that messenger. So notice the prophetic call, the anticipation for preparation, verse 3, and then all of a sudden, boom, he appears, verse 4. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You know, the way, the way Mark explains this, I mean, I mean it's, as, it's as though Mark just pops out of nowhere. And in a sense, He does. In a sense, he does, because in terms of God speaking to his covenant people, Israel, they haven't heard from him through a prophet for 400 years. For 400 years, there's been silence. Prior to Malachi, there there had been a continuous, unbroken line of prophets who spoke to Israel for God called by God and they would speak to Israel. Since the time of Malachi, nothing. So imagine this, put yourself in their sandals, okay? Nothing for 400 years. 400 years of silence, and all of a sudden, John appears out in the desert. The most important event in his in Israel for four centuries. And here's some radical guy who reminds them of Elijah preaching out in the wilderness. Signifying that the decisive moment of God's plan of redemption is at hand. It's at hand. So Mark, Mark simply says John appeared. It's very unlike Luke's account who gives us an extended narrative of John's predicted birth. Very detailed as well as an extended historical background of John's arrival. Mark just says, John appeared. Remember, this this gospel is fast-paced. There's a sense of immediacy. The word immediately is used 41 times in this gospel account. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's the response of his preaching? A massive influx of people. All the southern Israel were running to him. They heard about this. They ran out. This is a mad invasion, friends. This is remarkable. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. So there's the fulfillment of the prophecy. A voice. One crying in the wilderness. And the word wilderness is the same word for Desert. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, we're told there that John, this John, spent his life in the wilderness. He spent his life out in the desert. In here, south of Galilee, up and down the Jordan River, preaching is this John out in the desert. He's John the Baptist. He's not called that because he's the founder of the Baptist denomination. He's not called that because he was the first Baptist. It's actually John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. Now, baptism, and this was immersion, Immersion was a very uncommon practice for Jews. So, you don't want to miss this picture. They had, no doubt, elaborate ceremonial cleansings, ceremonial washings, but here they're, they're coming in droves, they're coming in swarms, and they're not coming out to some elaborate st- cozy stadium like we have for football games. Nor are they coming to some cozy sanctuary. This is rocky terrain in the Jordan, in the wilderness, the banks of the Jordan. They're flocking to this guy. Notice verse 5. In all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is remarkable. The only baptism Jews were familiar with was proselyte baptisms. That is, when a Gentile converted from their pagan religion to Judaism, all the males would have to be circumcised. Sign of the? Covenant. Covenant. And every Gentile, male or female, had to be baptized. That was for Gentiles. And it symbolized purification from the defilement of being outside the covenant community. So as they converted to Judaism, believing in the one true God, they, filthy Gentiles, were to be submerged into the water. The idea is the cleansing of defilement. So what John is saying to these huge crowds of Jews is, repent. Now imagine, 400 years of silence. Their hope is, oh, a a Messiah? Is he a Messiah? Is he the Messiah? He's certainly a prophet. Let's go see. Let's go hear. And here's what he says. You, you people have to come to terms with your sins. Stop trying to ignore it. Cease from putting this off. Stop trying to excuse yourselves, Israel. Imagine. Stop trying to justify yourselves. That's his message. You've been greedy. You've been cheating people with your crooked business practices. You're lying and cheating to your neighbor. You're corrupt. You need to repent. That's his message. You're way out of step with God. Stop denying it. You're self-righteous, presumptuous people. Acknowledge it. Repent of it. Basically saying, get on your faces before God and seek his forgiveness because you're guilty. Striking. John is calling people that know the law of God. John is calling the people who go to temple. John is calling people who belong to the local synagogue. He's saying, you're defiled. You're the filthy ones. You need cleansing. Your heart needs purification. He's he's certainly condemning the crooked leadership of the Pharisees. They were there. And the whole nation in its entirety. So he says, in effect, John is saying, in effect, to Israel, don't say you've got Abraham for your father. God can make children out of these stones for Abraham. Don't trust in your DNA. Don't trust in your lineage to save your wretched soul. You're filthy. Your DNA can't save you. Imagine. Your feasts... Your practices, all your religious ceremonies, okay, the ones prescribed by God, they can't save you. Nor can the ones that you've added to what God has prescribed. All the minutiae that you Pharisees have come up with. All these little details that God never said a word about. None of it can save you. You're doomed. Repent. Get on your face and repent before the living God. That's the messenger. That's the message. Now, notice verse 6. That's a radical message preached by a radical guy. Notice. John was clothed with camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You know, it's not common that someone's identified by what they wear and what they eat. Typically, unless you watch these little Hollywood fashion shows, did you see what so and so was wearing on the red carpet last night? Other than that, typically not. But if you live in the desert, this is desert wear. Because in the desert, it gets cold at night. He had camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. He's a Jew, and you couldn't eat anything that was unlawful or unclean. But locusts, if you read in Leviticus 20 or Leviticus 11, was deemed clean by God. So he ate locusts, a great source of protein, and honey, which was probably abundant. So here's a man, clothed like this, and this would have reminded them of, whoa, that's how Elijah was dressed. In camel's hair, and a belt like this. So he wasn't into popular fashion, to say the least. This is survival wear. And he's been out there his entire life. So he comes in the style... And the flare, if you will, of Elijah. That's how Elijah was dressed. Second Kings 1 8. So John stood among his contemporaries, as did his predecessor, Elijah. Totally different. Set apart. And he was calling the people, as did Elijah, to national repentance. National repentance. So, John's attire, not unlike Elijah's, was a protest against the godless, self-serving culture of Israel. That's what it represented for Elijah. That's no doubt what it represents for John. He's calling him out. He says, repent. Notice, he comes out preaching sin and repentance. That blessing, blessing is long gone in most churches today. The blessing of preaching, sin and repentance, most churches are too afraid to preach on. And they've given themselves, either directly or indirectly, to this prosperity, impotent kind of gospel preaching that we hear today. With an emphasis on self-esteem. It's the last thing we need is self-esteem. It's not until people are confronted by the facts of their own sin and impending judgment that is due to them, until that point, their ears are not open to hear about a Savior who saves them from their sin. Amen? How can you be saved if you don't know what you're being saved from? What are you being saved from? God. God. By who? God. God's wrath and judgment. He is both just and the justifier. So, John, obviously, he's not a guy who had some novel approach to ministry. He wasn't out in the desert his whole life thinking, hmm, how can I draw a crowd? Smoke machines? A funny comic? Guys who think they're rock stars and they failed in that genre so they try to be one in worship? No. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he came out preaching. Repent, you people who say you're people of God. You need to repent. Get on your face before God. You know, for generations, the sorry leadership of the Pharisees had put so much stock in obedience to the law and all the added laws that they put in there themselves, they put so much stock in it that people thought, if I just look the part, I'm good. That's what's going on. If I look religious, I'm good. I'm in. John says, you're corrupt. They, they, they fashioned this facade for themselves over these generations. And here, there's certainly not a people who took to heart Isaiah 64, 6, where God says, your righteous deeds, you know what they are before God? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. You can't earn your way before this God. How can you hear the good news until you first hear the Help me out. Bad. bad news. Good news isn't good news unless you hear the bad. This guy knew what he was doing. This guy knew how to preach. He comes out of the chute with the bad news. Your heart's corrupt. So from out all of southern Israel, people are flocking to this weird preacher. <laughs> out in the wilderness, powerful preacher, man, amen? Amen powerful, very unique, very eccentric, and John's baptizing them. However, John's baptism was entirely an outward, external affair. It was an external ritual. John, this preacher, is not capable of affecting any real change in the hearts and lives of these people. And he knows it. No preacher can affect change in anybody. Not the preacher himself. So the preacher better preach. He cannot do anything except make them aware of their desperate need. That's what he's doing. John was preparing them, getting them ready for the one who would do the real work. He was a forerunner. He's paving the way. He's the voice of the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Notice the announcement of this messenger so part of John's work was preparation and that is for this great declaration verse 7 and he preached saying after me there comes one who's mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie that's beautiful In other words, someone very, very special is coming. This is the heart of John's message. This is the sum of John's entire ministry. And this one, he's mightier than I. I, I'm not even worthy to stoop down on the dirty ground and even undo the strap of his sandal. Now, keep in mind this, very important. One of the tasks of a Hebrew slave, and they had many tasks, one of their tasks was not to untie or take off the sandals of their master. It was considered too low. It's too low even for a Hebrew slave to bow down before his master and take off his sandals. John says that lowly, actually the lowest of all tasks, is too high for me. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandal, let alone take it off. That's the one who's coming. So normally the task that's too low for anyone, for any Israelite to perform, John says it's far too high. He's mightier, notice. Mightier? That's language that the Old Testament uses for who? We just finished Exodus, help me out. God. He's miter. He's God. You know, the sole purpose of John's ministry was to point people to push them away from himself and towards Christ. That's our job. You never want to be one of these people who, you know, say you're gifted with counsel, the counsel. And people are always leaning on you. And sometimes people say, hey, I kind of like this. I like people leaning on me. Forget it. You want them leaning on Christ. They might lean on you for a little while. But then you're just going to get a big head. Look at how many people I help in ministry. No. Teach them to depend upon Jesus Christ. Not you. In John chapter 1, okay, remember John had his disciples. Okay? In John chapter 1, Verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. In the next verse, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So you can imagine John going, Oh, good. Good. They've understood what I've been saying. They followed Jesus. One of those disciples, we're told, was Andrew... Peter's brother, who we find out was always leading people to Jesus, bringing people to Jesus. So, what what makes this, what what makes for this infinite separation that John says, I'm not even worthy, he's mightier than I'm not even worthy to bow down and untie his sandals? So, John here, he gives the picture, and now he's going to point us to the reality of it all the reality of this. So we've seen the anticipation. We've seen the appearance of this preacher. We've heard his announcement. And it all culminates here in the word transformation. John doesn't have this power. John doesn't have power to transform. No preacher has power to transform anybody. You have no power to transform anybody. Notice. Verse 8. I, I've baptized you with water. But he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's Amazing. All I can do is dunk you in the water. I can tell you you're a sinner. I can tell you you need to repent, but I can't transform you. Only he can. You need to run to him. So he who is coming is going to do something so incredible, powerful. I can't do it. You know, the Old Testament, again, not only spoke of this coming one, that is the Messiah, coming, possessing the Holy Spirit, it also prophesied that he would come not only possessing the Holy Spirit, but would bestow the Holy Spirit. Look at these. Isaiah 32, 15. The Spirit from on high will be poured out upon us. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour out my Spirit upon your offspring. And then as we read this morning from Ezekiel, uh, chapter 36, verse 26. A new Spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Spirit, not only... Around y'all, but in you. God promised he would do this. Mark says, this one, he's God. The baptizer says, he's the only one that can do this. I can't do this. And that is baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He transforms hearts. I can't. Now, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit here. John is saying that when Jesus comes, he's going to do this great, remarkable, transforming work. This is real, inward, spiritual life he's talking about. This is not external religion. John's already confronted him on this. You're all caught up in external religion. That's what you're all about. This isn't about external rituals, this is about internal transformation. This is deep what he's talking about. This is no mere religious experience that produces appearance. See, that's dangerous, isn't it? So you experience something emotionally. And then your whole Christian life, if you're even a Christian, it's all about appearance. That's all it's about. It's a big show. You know, all of Israel's feasts, all of their symbols, all of their signs, all of the ceremonies... They all find their fulfillment where, beloved? In Christ. It all pointed to Him. The one who came and dwelt among us, the one who tabernacled among us, as John tells us, has made us tabernacles of the living God. Where does He live? In you. You're a tabernacle of the living God. Peter says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of His own possession. You're possessed. Did you know that? I know it's cute, and I've said it before, but you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Possession has to do with ownership. He owns you. You were bought at a great price. Possessed. Forever. Transformation. It's radical. So this is internal transformation, not, here it is, not outward renovation. Okay? Because outward religious renovation is like rearranging the uh, deck furniture on the Titanic. You're already going down. Right? And no amount of rearrangement can fix it. It will not keep you afloat. You're going down. It's all external. You know, Paul had to address false teachers who were advocating certain Jewish observances, and they argued that those observances were essential for spiritual advancement. And what did Paul say to that? Colossians chapter 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. He's the substance. Every one of Christ's followers, every one of Christ's true disciples, anyone who ever turned to follow Jesus when he came on scene, experienced his transforming power on the inside. And guess what? When he begins that work, he never ceases to do that work. So what, what he's talking about here, John will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the work that begins with transformation, okay? Regeneration, that's the first thing he does. Okay, we were born dead in our transgressions and sins. You're born dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. The dead can do nothing. It takes the the initiation of God himself. That's what Ezekiel is all about. I will take out a heart of stone. I will replace it with a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you. In other words, I will wash you. I will cleanse you. I will put a new heart within you. You know, that's what Jesus meant. Remember when he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus came to him, representing the the Sanhedrin, representing the Pharisees, and he said, you know, most certainly we see that you're from God, for no one can do the things that you do, lest he be from God. And Jesus answered him and said, Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. And he talked about the washing of the water, right? Washing of water. And he says, you know, uh, are you, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? What was he talking about? Ezekiel 36 is what he was talking about. That washing, that cleansing, that supernatural transformation. And that's what Titus 3 tells us is regeneration. It's the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It begins there. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop. So John again says, my baptism, it's not the real thing. It's just a symbol. What he'll provide is the real thing because he is the real thing. What he provides is not only internal, but eternal. Repent from your outward spiritual renovation, he says. Repent. Beautiful, isn't it? So, John is saying, Look, I'm only the one who prepares his way. I can only declare him to you. If you stay with me, you'll remain unchanged. Convicted, perhaps, but unchanged. Go to him, and he transforms. My work is external, his is internal and eternal. Beautiful. There's John, the messenger promised, the messenger who comes. On scene, proclaims the truth. And this is because he, Christ, loves you. Therefore, will not allow you to remain the same. And that goes for you to this day. He will not allow you to stay the same. He transforms you, and he continues to transform you. That's why he provides us means of grace such as this. To sit under his word, what, for 90 minutes? Oh, is that such a burden? 90 minutes? i got to get to the beach, man. You know, come on. Come on. It's not a time for a nap. This is God's means of grace. You know, we're all well aware of our mortality. Amen? We're very aware of it. And we do ponder now and again that, you know, I'm getting a little older. People are dying, and I'm going to die. And sometimes when... and iconic figure dies, it causes even the secular unbelieving world to kind of stand back and go, hmm, I'm finite. Okay, Prince died this week. Now, I happen to be a fan of his abilities. He's an incredible... Not his antics, okay? His writing ability and his musicianship. I happen to love musicians, and I know, and the ones who are talented, some of them are just... He was a phenom. Well, at around 10 a.m. on Thursday morning... The prince stood before the king of kings. I don't know his heart. Not at all. I hope he's with the Lord. The point is, all he is now is a dead guy. That's all he is. He's a dead guy. He stood before the king of kings. And sometimes deaths like that cause us... I mean, it was all over the news for two days. And you go, man... He's dead? 57? I could wake up dead. (laughs) Yeah, wake up dead. I said it. That's right. (laughs) In the presence of the living God. And you're either in the king or you're out of the king. And if you're out of the king, you'll be judged by the king. If you're in the king, he took your judgment. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the danger is when you face death like that, or you're reminded of death like that, the danger is trying to avoid it, trying to ignore it, trying to eliminate the reality, and all you will do is be concerned with the outward appearance of religiosity. That's it. And he says, You'll die like that. Israel, repent. You know, the Galatians were bewitched, Paul said. Because they were being bewitched by the seduction of their own religious additions to the one true gospel. Justification by faith alone. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone. According to the scriptures alone. For the glory of God alone. Word. Word. The Colossians, they were threatened by the gospel-diluting teaching of asceticism, which says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul said, you know, these do indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. That circumcision has to be done by the the presence of the Holy Spirit within. That's his work. You can't do that. So Jesus comes and baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He does a work regenerationally. He doesn't stop there because he works transformationally, day by day. You know how he does it? Friends, believers, relationally. Transformationally, regeneration. I mean, uh, uh, regenerationally, the new birth. Transformationally, sanctification. And he does it relationally because he dwells in you. And he continually leads you and guides you by way of his word. The word of God. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Deep down within. So, for anyone who's in Christ, he or she is a new creation That's step one. Yet he continues to provide inner spiritual power, strength, so as to grow by and be fruitful. And then Jesus said, from out of you, from out of you, will come streams of living water. From out of you, because of him. And this is the very reason, as we'll see, as we study this gospel this is the very reason Mark has, lays heavy emphasis on following Jesus, disciples of Jesus, to have life, joy, and inner peace. Question, do you have that? Do you have that? Do you want that? Perhaps you're indifferent to that. And if you're indifferent to that, that means you're indifferent, in, indifferent to him. That You want to repent of that. You don't want to run from him, friends. You want to press in where? To him. You run to him. You flee to him. So you can know who he is. You know what he's brought and what he's bringing. Conforming you to his very image. Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God. He's the only one that can baptize with the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, he's already baptized you and he's continuing to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Amen? He's conforming you to himself. This is a kingdom. Now you're a kingdom kid, right? You've seen the kingdom. You see it. You perceive it. And you're going to ultimately enter into it, into glory, that is. And this is a kingdom of forgiveness and blessing. And it comes to all those who repent all those who change their mind, all those who change their life about everything else, and you can only come to God with an empty hand, and you can only say this, God, you have to give me what I need, because there's nothing I can provide. Amen? So if you're not in Christ, that's how you come. Empty handed. And you beg, Lord, I need what only you can give. I have no religious practices that I can submit to you. I have no righteousness in myself that I can lay down before you. It goes back to John. Repent. We believe. And you shall be part of this kingdom. And then once you're part of the kingdom, we soon realize repentance is not a one-time event. Amen? Amen. Fellow Christian brothers and sisters, repentance is not a singular one-time event. John would tell us it's a lifestyle. (laughs) And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He does that work, conforming us to his image by way of his word. Therefore, I don't know how many times a day I repent. (laughs) And then I repent of not really probably repenting as I should have repented. Where do you go with that? Where do you go with that? To Christ. You run to him for that. He already knows your heart, so just be transparent, amen? Lay it out, man lay it out to him. He baptizes with the Spirit. So Mark is telling us there's something very, very special happening in Jesus, providing what only he can provide. So God is eager for us to experience the fullness of Christ this way. God is saying, I have this for you. I want this for you. It's true life. It's true peace. It's true joy. And it only is found in a relationship with this one. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not worthy to bow down and even untie the strap of his sandal. He's the mightier one, amen? May he bless your spirit by way of his word today, amen?